0: We're working our way, because it's what we do, through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews verse by verse, the new and living way, this is part 41. And the topic this morning is, does God care, does God care how often we go to church? There are a lot of people who better hope he doesn't. Does God care how often we go to church? The text is Hebrews 10:23 to 27. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Somebody changed colors on me and I don't know if you can you see that? It's not. Boy, that's a horrible mess, isn't it? I'm sorry. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to, to love and good works. I don't know if this is helpful or not. There's an order there. Love and then good work. So it's not just doing stuff, but, but a heart filled with love that leads to. Faith working through love, the Apostle Paul calls it in the book of Galatians. Not neglecting to meet together as, as is, and there's the word, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For, so this is obviously a link. For is a link word. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Let's pray. We want to be people such that our hearts are both moved to embrace promises and moved to fear warnings, so that, Lord Jesus, we will, we will find ourselves responsive to the way the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word, not just reading it, but responding to it. Help us as we do it. Attend the teaching of your Word this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, last week, we actually covered verse 23 last Sunday morning, but I'm, I'm repeating it here. You'll notice in the text that I read because it kind of gives you a running, a running start into today's text. So the issue is, what, what does our writer mean by holding fast the confession of our hope? And what's involved in holding fast holding fast, and, and what's involved in wavering, without wavering. I think as I read it, you probably noticed something strange and a little bit uncomfortable in this text. There, there's, the, there's the weird way that our writer connects his thoughts in these verses, and, and particularly difficult to, to get our taste buds around... is, is the abrupt change in tone... When, when you get here... to that 26th verse. For, for if we go on sinning deliberately... after receiving a knowledge of the truth... there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins... but a fearful expectation of judgment... And a and what is this? A fury of fire... That will consume the adversaries. Where does all that come from? What's all this talk of sin and wrath and judgment? I mean, verses 24, 25, they're all about loving, right? And, and encouraging one another and going faithfully to church. And, and it's not just that our writer decides to completely change the subject in 26 and 27. That's what that word for He obviously intends there to be some kind of a link with what he said in verses 24 and 25. But these last two sin and judgment verses don't seem a very good fit with those first two going to church verses. I don't think. I mean, It would make more sense if, in verse 25, our writer had said, And do not continue to blaspheme the name of the Lord. Or if it, verse 25, had said, And do not continue in adultery or same-sex relationships. And then went on in 26 and said, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Okay, we'd at least see what was going on. Do you get what I'm saying? But the way they're written, the the flow seems kind of odd and out of place. Look at it again. 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For, if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Fiery wrath, expectation, flames, judgment. I think verses 24 and 25 tell us how to do what 23 commands. So 23 is about holding fast the confession of our faith without wavering, okay, how, how 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 do I do that? So the commandment to hold fast and then the threat of wavering they, they, they imply that there's more to this holding on to the confession of our hope than maybe is immediately recognized. We will need a disciplined plan to do it. In other, words, in other words, we can't just hope that we're going to hold fast to our faith without wavering. sure hope the planets line up right and, and nothing too terrible happens and I sure hope I can hold on to the confession of my faith. Hold fast without wavering. I sure hope that works out. That's not the flow of these verses. So with all that in mind, Let's pick up today's text in verse 24. Point number one. With all the things competing for my time, my energy, my wealth, the greatest concern of my heart must be love and good works that glorify God. I get that in 24. Let us consider How to stir one another to, and there it is, to love and to good works. Stir up stir up one another, one another. There's different ways, right, of of describing a group of people. Our our writer uses that frequently repeated biblical uh, lingo one another. Love one another, be kind to one another, forgiving one another. The one another's are all over the place in the New Testament. It, it's different from the collective term that we so often use, which would just be us. In fact, the verse doesn't even feel right if you change us for one another. Let us consider how to stir us up to love and good works. I mean, it, it kind of works. But us, us is more inward looking. Us has more of me in it. One another is, is more outward. It's a little bit more directional. It's more relational. Us, us is a label. One another is more of an activity. And our writer says, this one another bit. Our writer says it it needs fresh consideration. Do you see it right there? It It needs fresh consideration every time we gather in Christ's name. Let us let us consider. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Were you thinking about that when you parked your car today? Where'd you park? Out that side? Out this side? came in what were you thinking about how, how, how can I who is there for me to touch in this place today he says consider that when you come in here when you come in here are you thinking about what you're going to get out of it or are you thinking about what you're putting into it? Let, let us consider one another. That word for consider—it's the same verb meaning to inspect. It, it means it means to examine something really closely. To to pause. And zoom in on an idea. That's our writer's way of telling us how easy it is to have lazy thoughts about the body of Christ. He's telling us how easy it is to have no specific one another intentions. When you walk into the sanctuary at ten to ten. Or for a lot of you, ten after ten. then our writer tells us the kind of intensity this one another consideration is to have. It's still in that 24th verse. Let us consider how to, how to stir up. How to stir up one another to love and good works. Some of you still have the old King James. And the old King James actually says we're to, if you have it, we're to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Provoke. Seriously? See, whenever we hear that word provoke, we hear it in its kind of negative sense. Like provoking someone to anger. My mother, my mother used to tell the four Horban boys, I hear this five times a week, that we were provoking her to death. I know what you're thinking, Pastor Don, that I look at you today and that hardly seems possible. (laughs) You guys are provoking me to death. And truthfully, that's usually the way that word is used, even in the biblical text. Fathers are not to provoke their children to wrath. Or the way Israel was repeatedly said in the Old Testament, to provoke the Lord. but the word isn't always used in a negative way the greek word it's a it's a tongue twister paroxusmos is the word the niv translates the same word to spur on one another english standard version stir up one another new american standard stir up one another so so the idea in all of those is to is to press for some kind of action in people but it's not talking about the pastor It's talking about the comers. The people who are there. Motivate something in people. Let something fire up in somebody's heart toward the Lord because of your influence in their life. It's a humbling self-understanding, isn't it? It's not a simple thing for Pastor Don to admit that left alone, I don't have the inner resources to do very well spiritually. We need the one another. It's humbling to admit that. So in other words, our writer is stressing something urgent in this coming together, something we're supposed to consider, how we can provoke, stir up one another to love and good works. This, our writer would say, this matters, what's pressing on your mind right now? Our writer would say, this matters more than anything else. Whatever might be pressing on your time or your resources, nothing deserves deep consideration Like this deserves deep consideration. So so it's not just that I want to be encouraged and I want to be challenged and I want to be transformed when I go to church. It's it's that I I can't go home happy unless, unless I challenge, unless I encourage, unless I help someone else in their spiritual journey and transformation. I can't leave church not doing that, and I consider that all the time. important point in our text is we are to go to church considering this. We are to come into the sanctuary already thinking about the struggles people face. Who do you know in this room right now? What are they going through? We should know some of these simply by remembering the kind of struggles we face. Only only we're to consider these struggles properly when we understand that one of the reasons God allows us to go through struggles is so that we can better and more accurately consider the struggles of others. Like there's a plan in this and it's a one another plan. The point is this one another commitment. It needs constant thought. We we, we have to aim at it. Hurting people easily forget that others are going through the same suffering. People who have just lost their job forget that there are others who are also out of work. People who have grown tired of praying for an unsafe spouse forget that there are others who feel the same pain of loneliness that they feel. Or even more important, there are some who finally had the kind of answer to prayer that others are still longing for. There's that one another thing that's supposed to be happening. And into this situation, into this church gathering, comes our inspired writer of Hebrews, Screaming at the top of his lungs. Stir all this up when you come together. Make something happen. Look around you. Think. That's the verb. Consider. That's the divine command. Point number two. The way all that I've been talking about. The way this doesn't happen, and the way God isn't glorified, isn't complicated. He talks about it in the 25th verse. Not neglecting to meet together as is the the habit. He He doesn't feel guilty telling them that. As is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and then all the more as you see the day drawing near. Couple of thoughts. So immediately you can't help but sense the contrast between those two words. If you have the text open in front of you. The two words. Consider. Verse 24. Do you see it in front of you? Consider. In verse 24. And neglect. In 25. There's the difference, right? There's the difference. Something's considered in verse 24 that's been forgotten in verse 25. That's what he's saying. So we're we're meant to see the difference between the, the mental effort of considering and the mental lapse of neglecting. Considering is refusing to let something important be neglected. Right? That's what considering is. Neglecting is allowing something important to go unconsidered. That's the relationship between the two. And, and here's, here's the important difference. It's, it's that negative neglecting. That's the part that becomes habitual. The aggressive considering never becomes habitual. It, takes, it just takes constant, renewed effort and self-discipline and self-denial because there'll always be other things to do when church time rolls around. Always. That's the reason our writer says that some people... Some people... are. They were neglecting to meet to to meet together regularly, as a matter of unguarded habit. Do you see it there? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit. This habit wasn't formed by rejecting; it wasn't formed by denying. It was formed by neglecting. There's all the difference in the world. You don't have to deny anything. You don't have to change your beliefs. We all know how this works. Here's the difference. You form good habits. This isn't rocket science. You form good habits. You fall into bad habits. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? You form good habits. You fall into bad habits. That's what our writer says happened here. And and here's what it means for us. Those words were written a long time ago, but here's what they mean for us. It means that if you and your busy household with two careers and your classes and all the organized sports that you've got your kids in and the early commute, going to work, the late evenings coming home. If you're going to form the habit of consistent time sacrificing, energy sacrificing church attendance. If you're going to do that, well then you'll have, you'll have to consciously construct a lifestyle around that. Because that habit's never going to fall into place. Another habit is the one that's going to fall into place. This one, you're going to have to build from the ground up. Point number three. Our writer tells us why this commitment is worth whatever sacrifice you have to make to keep it. 26 and 27. For, so this is linked, whether we like it or not, with the preceding verses. I'm not making it up. It's just, it's just what the English language does. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I don't, I don't think there's Anybody, myself included. I don't think there's anyone in this room that likes the way these verses wrap up. They don't seem to be in sync with what we've just been considering. They're kind of harsh sounding. I mean, the threat seems, the threat seems out of proportion to the crime, right? I mean, the crime of sleeping in on a Sunday morning, the crime of, Barbecuing hamburgers on a Sunday night. I don't know. That threat of fiery wrath consuming the adversaries. Really? How does does that fit in? With, uh, I didn't didn't make it to church. (laughs) Got to be a mistake, Pastor. Some scribal error. Something. So we need to figure out what's going wrong. What's happening? That little word, for at the beginning of verse 26 means that our writer does intend he does intend some kind of connection between those two sin and judgment verses 26 and 27 with the previous go to church verses 25 but but what exactly is the nature of the connection what is it what is it we're supposed to see as we Try to connect the dots of the sentences in this in this text, and, and here's how I think. Here's how I think these verses fit together. Start when you get a, when you get a text like that. Start with good questions. Here's the first one I ask when I read verse 26. What would make a person? Here's the question. What would make a person? go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth? Okay? That's a fair question. I mean, verse 26 at least hints that this person was was at one time a church attender, knowledge of the truth. And what would make a person like that? What would make a person think that his sin wasn't that sinful after all? What, what would make a person like that think that his sin wouldn't be terribly self-destructive? What would make a person who's heard the truth think that God would never be as against his or her sin as, you know, all those redneck preachers say? Why? Why would a person's mind go down that track? Why would anyone just deliberately, that's the word, just deliberately go on sinning after knowing the truth. And here's the culturally unacceptable answer, but I think the one the text demands. I believe our writer won't let us dodge something in this text. For whatever reason, this person's habit, this person's habit of continuing in sin, even while knowing better, coincides with this person's habit of not regularly attending church. Do you see that in the text? This person's habit of just continuing in sin, knowing better, that habit coincides with this person's habit of neglecting going to church regularly. And our writer means for me to ask a question. He means for you to ask a question. So is this just a textual coincidence? And, and this text tells me, no, Don, no, it's, it's not a coincidence. There's a cause and effect thing happening here. Because as you start isolating yourself from the body of Christ become your own interpreter and your own judge and your own deceptive heart, especially if you're persisting in some area of disobedience and sin, you will always find reason for justifying that when, when you're your own biblical leader. We, we incline our reading of the Bible and our knowledge of the truth in our own favor without the body of Christ. Please understand, please understand, I'm I'm, I'm not simple here. I'm not saying, and our text isn't teaching, that there are no Christians attending church who don't continue in sin while knowing the truth, because there certainly are. And our text isn't saying attending church regularly is the only thing one must do to grow in holiness and live ...in growing freedom from habitual sin. Clearly there are other things as well. I get it. But here's what I think our text is saying. And it, and it desperately needs shouting from the rooftops... ...in our self-loving, consumer-oriented, pleasure-loving church... ...that you will never overcome your own areas of blindness... ...to your habitual sin... ...apart from regular disciplined involvement in a local church. Our text says... God has ordained it that way. And there's people right now all over this room that are respectfully silent but don't really believe that's the truth. And it is. It absolutely is the truth. Point number four. we need to help each other remember there's a day drawing near all the more as you see the day drawing near the first evidence here's how I'd like to um try and wrap this up with some statements that you can take home with you. Remember and take home with you. Here's a couple of them. The first evidence of spiritual decline in your life and mine is when the warnings of scripture no longer move us. That's way before any outward sin. It's way before the the fruit of that decline manifests itself. That's why I said the very first evidence of spiritual decline is when the warnings of scripture don't actually move us even when we read them. To remain unmoved by the warnings of scripture is to is to rapidly increase spiritual dementia. The second evidence of spiritual decline is when the future hope of that great day of the Lord no longer motivates me. I didn't say excites me. That's easy. I said motivates me. That's why our writer is encouraging us here. Rather than neglect, he urges consideration. Rather than decrease, he urges increase. The the direction needed as the day draws near isn't less commitment, but more commitment. And all the, say it with me, more as you see the day approaching. And I love the way he says see it. See that day. I think it's part of the consideration that he was talking about. Picture it. Imagine it constantly. You you will never regret heeding God's word, whatever the cost is now, and there will always be cost to heeding God's word now. If you live your whole life seeing that day still to come, so much the more as you see, isn't it interesting he uses that word, not just hear about, as you see the day drawing near. Didn't we sing it? Even so come, Tom was leading us, every heart longing for our king, we sing. Or he was longing for our king. But, but you know what I mean. Every heart longing for our king. That's it. Even so come. So we're, we're supposed to, if I read this right, Go on any website. Go on CW's website and you'll see morning worship 10 o'clock. Christian Education 1130. Evening service 6pm. There you go. That's the schedule. And in, 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 in none of that schedule. On any church's website. There's the service as you walk through the door. There's nothing that can make you come into this place. Seeing the day coming seeing the day drawing near and and wanting this not less and less but more and more and more why because this is the this is the bride waiting for the groom consider all these things don't neglect gathering together As is the habit. You form good habits, you fall into bad habits. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. What a text! So many serious thoughts inspired by the Holy Spirit. Imprint them on the people of God as your spirit works within us. Not some legalistic keeping of attendance. But a consideration of the delight of being the people of God together. More and more as we see the day approaching. ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before they uh, sing. Debated whether to do this, but we're doing pretty. I did it at the end because I wanted to see if we had time. So I just Googled. You can do this. Googled this morning. Why Christian people attend church less and less. And and uh, I got about five different lists with different things on them. So I thought the fairest way to do it was pick the common elements. So in other words, what I'm reading you now are things that were on all the lists. And they're put together by Christian people, some of them, others just by a place, you know, like the New York Times and other organizations entirely. So if I were to pick five things, the most common things that make Christian people attend church less, what do you think they would be? Here's number one. Number one is affluence. Money gives people options. There are simply more affluent people than there were decades ago, which may in part explain why so many average people indulge their obsessions with granite countertops, designer homes, decent cars, blah, 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 and the options. People with money have options, technology options, travel options, options for their kids. Arguably, that affluence may be one of the factors moving them further away from a committed engagement to the mission of the local church. Okay, so one, affluence. Two, didn't surprise me at all, but it might surprise you. What do you think the second common element on all these lists that keeps Christian people away from church? Organized sports for their kids. Ouch. Again, I didn't make the list. Growing number of kids are playing sports. Growing number of kids are playing on teams that require travel. Growing number of kids play sports, and a growing number of parents choose sports over church. Many of those sports happen on weekends and affluent parents, remember one, are choosing sports over church. Three, what do you think the third thing is? Travel. Uh, More and more families of various age travel for leisure, even if it's just out of town to go camping or to a friend's place on the weekend or a weekend at the lake. When people are out of town, they tend not to be in church. Online options. Churches stream their services on TV. I sleep in. I sit in front of my laptop. And I watch church. But do you see how different... That, the reason I'm reading that now... Do you see how different that is from considering one another? There's no, there's no one another. It's, it's... Religious voyeurism is what it is. Peak Christianity. this doesn't surprise I don't think any of us the massive cultural disappearance of guilt when I grew up I felt guilty about not being church on Sunday the number of people that feel guilty about anything including church services shrinks exponentially hourly anyway my point in all that is if if, if we're going to consider this there is a cost you, you, you fall into bad habits. <laughs> you build good ones.